Dave. And if we haven't met, and there may be some visitors here this morning, I'd love, love to meet you, and we just want to welcome you here this morning. But um, picture this scene with me, if you will. Honey, uh, I'm on my way to work, says the husband and father, or perhaps it's the other way around, the wife and, and mom, as he or she grabs her briefcase and heads out the door. Okay, dear, says the other spouse. I'll just be here with the kids, not working at all. Love you. I know, I was supposed to be cheeky. But you know, our language tells us something about what we, what we believe, what we really think. Uh, this morning is part two in our series, The Other Six Days. And that, the title of this series is borrowed from a book, wonderful book, um, by Paul Stevens of the same title. And this series is intended at helping us think Christianly, theologically, biblically about the things we spend, well, the, the majority of our lives doing. Ross Hastings, he's the um, practical theology professor at Regent College, he says it like this, many Christians in many churches are frustrated by not having a theology of the things they spend most of their lives doing, work and play. This hampers their general sense of joy and shalom or peace in life and therefore their effectiveness in mission. Two areas this affects, he says. One is our own just experience of life and our joy in life or our lack thereof and our effectiveness in mission. We need to think well about our work and our play. So this series is about helping us gain a, a really thoughtful and, and well thought out uh, understanding of, well, the other six days. The days of the week we spend working and resting and, and playing. And it's about understanding what it means to live a, a holy God-filled life. To say God is in my, in my everything, that there's not a part of my life that's divorced from what God is doing. And so we need to begin really by digging into um, the first question our scenario raised this morning. What is work? Like how do we define it? And what's not work? Um, maybe will be helpful as well. So Paul Stevens, he defines work this way. He says, work is purposeful activity involving mental, emotional, and, and physical energy, or all three, whether reimbursed, whether it's paid, or not. Now, it's a simple definition, and it's obviously it's a very broad definition, but that's why I think it's actually a good one, too. The main element of this definition rests on this word purposeful. This is, I think, one of the main ways that differentiates work from play. See, play is by definition, and we're going to go more into this later, play is by definition purposeless. It's not in service of some other purpose. It, true play is just enjoying simply for the sake of enjoyment itself. In his great book, God and My Everything, uh, Ken Shigematsu, he's the pastor of 10th Ave Alliance in, in Vancouver here, he writes, play is doing something for its own sake. Maybe it's a game of pickup ball hockey with the other boys down the street. Um, maybe it's painting or sewing or fishing. These activities are, are play, are enjoying God and his gifts and his world. It's enjoying the activity for the sheer enjoyment of it. No other purpose. See, if our tennis game is really about the exercise, or if it's about winning, 
Or if we go for a hike and we want to climb a mountain, but it's really about checking that off our list or saying, I conquered the mountain. If it's about exercise or winning or conquering something, it's not play anymore. We've made it into something else. Play is purposeless. Like I said, we'll talk more about play later, but I just want to contrast it with work in this sense that work serves a purpose. And it involves mental, emotional, or physical energy, or all three. And it doesn't matter if we get paid or not. So think from this definition what things would be included in our work. Like that scenario, uh, which of the spouses is the one going to work or the one staying home with kids? Which one is going to work? Well, in this definition, both of them, of course. Um, The work of staying home with kids is a good work, and it is hard work. But think of what this also means for those who are retired or thinking about retirement in the future. Just because we don't get a paycheck from our job or we don't have to show up to a nine-to-five doesn't mean we retire from the work God has called us to. In this sense, we can never really retire. We are made to participate with God in his good world for the sake of God and the sake of our neighbors that he loves. So if you're retired, I want to say a few things to you. This would be one of them. It's really important. Because of all of the experience and skills that you've learned over the years, this season of life actually has the potential to be the most significant time of work, of serving God and serving others in your whole life. Your work has not ended, not even close. Leonard Sweet, in in a book um, called The Well-Played Life, he he talks about third-agers, and by this he's speaking of those who are in the third third of their lives, those 60-plus sort of years. He speaks of this group in this way. He says, in a world where many people think of Jesus' way, truth, and life as unfollowable, unknowable, and unlivable, third-agers reveal Jesus as fallible, followable, knowable, and livable. Third agers showcase the rewards of choosing the truth of the Christ life, the joy of playing in God's presence and pleasure. The church desperately needs our third agers to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus, to live the life he has called us to live, to show us and bless those of us in younger generations with a picture of what it looks like to play out the life God has given you well. We need you if you're in that category. Your work still matters desperately. But see, in order to understand what our work is and what it's to be about, we're going to dig deeper into the opening chapters of the Bible again this morning. Now, just as a quick recap, in our first message, and just as a reminder, if you didn't get to hear that one, you can just go to our webpage and either download it or or watch it online. In our first message... um, We looked at how work is a good thing because it's a God thing. God reveals himself as one who who works, and in many different ways. We found out that God dignifies all kinds of work. We see him as an artist dreaming up and bringing into being this good world he made. As an architect, we see him show up as a gardener and a tree planter, an anesthesiologist and and a surgeon. And we see later in the story of the Bible that God comes as a carpenter. God dignifies all kinds of work. And he invites us to join him in that. 
But today we're going to dig in a little bit deeper to what uh, is the meaning of work, and we're going to look at the other side of the coin as well. Yes, work is a good thing because it's a God thing, but it's also a broken thing, and we all know what that feels like. It is not right now what God intended it to be. So first, a little bit deeper into what is work. Second, why does it hurt to work? (laughs) And third, what's the solution? Pray with me as we prepare our hearts. God, our Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're present with us now. We thank you that you inspired this text. You inspired the scriptures to be written that we might know you and know who we are and know how you're calling us to live. Open our hearts and minds now to your word, Lord. Amen. So first, what is work? Well, last week we looked at Genesis uh, 1.26 and we sort of uh, drilled down a bit into this verse. Let's, let's look at that briefly again. If you have your Bibles open to Genesis 1.26, I think it's on the screen as well. Yes. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that. Purpose clause, isn't it? What has God made us for? So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. To be made in God's image is, as we see here, a task. It's something we do. We're to rule. And that word rule, I'll keep saying this, um, means to manage carefully, to be a good steward of, to take care of what God has called good. So our work in ruling is work of managing on behalf of God. We're we're an image of his purposes and priority to the rest of creation. It's a task. But now look at the next verses. Genesis 1, 27 to 28 says, So God created the humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. See, it takes all of humanity, both male and female, to image God. Together, we bear the image of God. Let's keep going. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Fill, subdue, rule male and female together, imaging God, representing God to the rest of God's created world, filling, subduing, ruling, is still our task. But as we've noted, the sort of of work described here, and let's talk about it a bit more now, it isn't limited to agriculture or to animal husbandry. John Walton writes this in his commentary, more than anything else, subduing and ruling give people the mission of bringing order to the world just as God brought order to the cosmos. That's what we talked about mostly last week that, or two weeks ago, that our work is, is that of separating, of bringing order out of chaos. But uh, here's how A. Walters puts it. He says it well as well. From now on, the development of the created world or the created earth will be societal and cultural in nature. In a single word, the task ahead is civilization. What does he mean by that? 
the work God gives us is to creatively bring forth the potential of the land. That's why theologians often call this the cultural mandate. What do they mean by that? Well, when we, yes, when we hear the word culture, we think of some highfalutin thing or something that's out there. It's out there, the culture, as though we're not a part of it. Uh, no, culture, that actually the word is linked to the idea of cultivation. It's taking the raw materials of the earth or anything, really, and bringing something, forming it, making something out of the raw materials. Here's what James Smith writes about Genesis 1.28. He says, cultivating is an agricultural metaphor. It, it points to culture making, he says. Uh, we have, what we have is an agriculture metaf- agricultural metaphor for cultural work in general. Now, cultural work in general. Here's how I would define cultural work. It's the shaping of environments. This would include physical environments, but it would also include social environments or political environments, uh, all kinds of the, the ways that we would function in, in different areas uh, is culture making. And this happens through language, right? We express our culture mostly through the words that we speak and how we, how we say things. So our language is, is intimately tied to our culture. It comes through our laws, what we say is right and wrong, what we'll allow in a, in a society or will disallow in a society. Um, other things as well, like, like art and music and education and storytelling, all of that forms the culture that we're a part of. He goes on, the commission of humanity to tend, till, and care for God's creation, eliciting all of the potential that is latent in God's good creation. Let's just step back for a second from all that. What has God made us for? To be culture shapers, culture makers. But we might ask, you know, in the Genesis narrative, wasn't the world perfect already? Didn't God make it perfectly? The answer might surprise some of us, and it's no, he didn't. He said, this is the work I've done. He's done the creating, and now it's your turn to join me in it, to get on with the task of filling, subduing, ruling. There's still work to do, is what God says, and you and I, as his image bearers, are invited to be a part of that creative, culture-making work. We see that everything God made was very good, and now he includes us in the task of continuing that good work. And we see this, actually, when we look at the very end of the Bible. Revelation 22, last chapter in the whole big book. What do we get? Another picture of the Garden of Eden. Right? The tree of life, it says, is right there in, in the middle of that garden. But then we look again and we find out it's actually not a garden anymore. It's a city. What begins as a garden and a mission becomes a city bustling with human life and their cultures. It's all there in the city of God. God gets what God wants at the end. Amen? Tim Keller, he puts this uh, idea of culture making really well in his book, Every Good Endeavor. He writes, farming takes the physical materials of soil and seed and produces food. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges them into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean a room, when we use technology to harness um, the forces of electricity, 
when we take an uninformed and naive mind and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and we turn them into a poignant work of art, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Our call to cultivate culture, cultivate creation, to be culture makers, is a call that extends to every area of our lives. Andy Crouch in a book, just to give you another illustration, show you more of what this looks like. What does this look like, Dave? Here's what it looks like. His wife, Catherine, is a physics professor. Andy writes, in her work as a professor of physics, Catherine can do much to shape the culture of her courses and her research lab. In the somewhat sterile and technological environment of a laboratory, she can play classical music to create an atmosphere of creativity and beauty. She can shape the way her students respond to exciting or disappointing results and can model both hard work and good rest rather than frantic work and fitful procrastination. By bringing her children with her to work occasionally, she can create a culture where family is not seen as an interruption from work and where research and teaching are natural parts of a mother's life. By inviting her students into her home, she can show that she values them as persons, not just as units of research productivity. At the small scale of her laboratory and classroom, she has the real ability to reshape the world. Yes, she does. And so do you too. There's no area of our working that is not bursting with opportunity to fill our God, fulfill our God-given mandate to shape culture, to be culture makers. Some of you are thinking, Dave, I could see myself doing that. Yeah, maybe it is in my classroom or another area of work, but my guess is that some of you are also thinking, well, how can I do that in my office? You don't know my office, Dave. Or, um, you know, I just, I, I work at Zach's Coffee or Tim Horton's. So like, how do I... How do I shape culture there? Let me give you some illustrations, maybe. Say you work at Zach's. I see Claire smiling at me. She works at Zach's. Um, you make coffee. You, you serve people muffins and sandwiches, and they're very good, by the way. How do you engage in conversation with your coworkers? How do you respond when there's gossip in the workplace? How do you treat the customers, especially when they're impatient or, or, or grumpy? even when they seem to be looking down on you, maybe. How do you clean the bathroom? Do you know that that shows love for God and neighbor? Yes, it does. How you clean the bathroom matters. Is culture shaping. Or how do you speak about your boss when that comes up with other coworkers? Because it does, right? In the way you interact with others, how you do your work, all of that has an impact on the culture. Would you do that, whatever that is for you, for the sake of God and his calling on your life? This is our human vocation. All humans share this. We're all made in the image of God. We are all called to participate in culture making. Work is good because it's, it's a God thing. Work includes bringing order out of chaos, and it includes being culture makers, but we need to see this as well. Work is good, but it is broken. See, God creates humanity. He puts them in his garden to care for it and, and work it, 
But these first humans, they believe that they lacked something. They don't trust God. They don't trust his love for them. And they rebel against God. They disobey. The, he only gave them one command. They had utter freedom except for one thing. And they crossed that line. What's the result? Well, ultimately, it was their death. It was separation from God. It was the unraveling of their other relationships, their relationships with their own self, their relationships with other people, their relationship with the earth itself. All of it comes unraveled when they choose to live apart from God and God's ways. And look at Genesis 3, 17 to 18. This is a part of the curses we read that results from sin. It says, cursed is the ground, God is saying, because of you. Because you tried to live apart from me. Because you rejected and rebelled against me, God is saying. Through painful toil. Look at that word. I looked it up. It's not just work anymore, like in 2.15. Avad in Hebrew is, is work. It's a good thing. No, their avad has become itzvan. It's become pain. So we could translate it, straight up pain. Your work will be pain. Painful toil is how the NIV translates it, I think, well. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Thorns, thistles, sweat. Again, James Smith says, we've inherited a misguided assumption that work is a result of the fall. No, it's not. We see in Genesis 3 that it's not work per se, which is the consequence of sin, but rather toil. It's von. A sense that things are working against us when we work. And we can relate to that phrase, can't we? Things work against us when we work. All I have to say is, remember that time the computer crashed? Before you hit save, and autosave failed, and it's all gone. You know, my wife and I, when we were living in Hamilton, I came home from school one day to do more schoolwork, and the door just kind of pushed open. Ooh, that's odd. And I walked in, and dresser was overturned, stuff was gone through, and our computer tower, oddly, my $3,000 Les Paul guitar was still there. Guy wasn't too bright, I guess. But my computer tower, which he could maybe fetch 50 bucks for at the pawn shop, was gone. All of my work for the last two years on it. All of my assignments nearly finished, taken. Oh, the curse of sin, the brokenness of the human heart, the condition we live in. Things seem like they're working against us when we work. Boy, it, it sure did that day. See, and we need to remember that that the gardening and the cultivation in Genesis, these are metaphors that represent actually all kinds of human labor and culture building. There are thorns and thistles in more than just the ground, aren't there? There's a level of frustration that we will experience, even in our callings that we believe are the very best fit for us. We might work, say, very hard on a project, give it our all, do our very best at it. We're really happy with it. We bring it to our staff, and, and it kind of goes, oh, that's interesting. We'll put that on the back burner. Ah, thorns, thistles. Or maybe we had the idea, and we worked hard on it, and someone else got the credit and the promotion. Thorns and thistles. Maybe you were planning an outing for your kids, 
you packed all their favorite foods. You took their favorite toys. The van was stacked to the roof of all the good stuff you were going to enjoy. And you finally get them in the car and they start complaining and whining and fighting with each other and saying, why are we even doing this? And you're asking yourself, why am I even doing this? It seems fruitless. That's the thorns and thistles in our work. Even Jesus in his ministry, how many times did he look to his disciples and say things like, don't you see or understand? Are you still hard-hearted? Jesus experienced frustration, thorns and thistles in his work too. Work is good, but it's broken. So here's our big question. What do we do with our thorns and thistles? How do we respond? And is work even redeemable? Can it be good again? How do we respond first? We have to realize that thorns and thistles are inevitable. Genesis tells us so. This means there's no perfect job for you out there. I'm sorry. No perfect place where you're always going to feel satisfied and there'll be no thorns and thistles. It doesn't exist, and that's a guarantee. You will always bump up against the goodness of work and the difficulty of it, too. The grass isn't necessarily greener somewhere else, folks. Now, I feel like I have the perfect job in a lot of ways, but I experience thorns and thistles almost daily in different ways, too. Second, this is big, in Christ... We are given resources to deal with those thorns and thistles. The first is the Holy Spirit himself. God himself comes to be with us, to walk with us, to work with us and us with him. And so when we face those difficulties in our work, we feel like we're up against it. What does 1 Peter 5, 7 say? Cast all your cares on him. That's God to include our thorns and thistles in our work. Bring it to God when you bump up against that stuff for he cares for you. You see, your thorns and thistles can't mean that God doesn't love you, that he doesn't care. Yes, he does love you. Yes, he does care. That's precisely why you need to go with him when you bump up against those thorns and thistles. Second, we have the the Christian community is the other resource we have in Christ. God, God gives us each other to support, to care for, to listen, to encourage, to pray with. Why? Why do we think small groups are important in our church? Because life is hard and work is hard. (laughs) It is hard, isn't it, Debbie? And we need each other. Amen. I can't tell you how many times I've had the input and encouragement and prayer from my small group when I've been dealing with things and managing my sense of call around being a pastor as well. Third, this is probably the I don't want to say the biggest one, but this is really huge. We have to get it. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says he has what in his side? A thorn. A thorn. A thorn? I don't know if this is an echo from Genesis 3. It might be. might be an echo from Genesis 3. But he says this. He has something, and we don't know what it is. Some say it's poor eyesight or, or poor health, but we do know this. It made his work hard. It made his life hard, and he asked God to take it away. Get rid of this thing, God. It's too difficult. What does God say in response? Remember? No. Three times I asked him. What did he say each time? Paul, no. I want you to have this thorn in your flesh. I want you to depend on me. I want you to not be filled with pride. (laughs) See, how it functioned in Paul's life, I think, is how our thorns and thistles and work can function in our lives too. 
that they draw us to run to God and depend on Him in the difficulty. They cause us to, to, they challenge our pride as well. What does God say to Paul? He says, no, I'm not going to take it away, for my grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient doesn't mean overwhelming. Ah, you'll be blown away by it. No, sufficient means what? Just enough. I'll give you enough for what you need to get through. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God delights to use our weakness so that his strength might show through us. That's what God wanted to do. He wanted it, he wanted it to be clear that anything Paul accomplished was not because of Paul, but because of him. God's work through Paul. And we need to see that over and over again. This is how the Bible invites us to see our difficulties, that they shape us to look like Jesus. Look at James 2, 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you might be what? Mature, complete, not lacking anything. That's God's goal for you, to make you like his son Jesus, to make you and I mature and complete and how does God do it? James tells us through thorns and thistles and all kinds of other circumstances that happen to be very, very tough. That's often the point of our pain. I can't tell you why you might be suffering at any given moment. I don't know why you have the thorns and thistles other than that's a part of the curse. But I do know this. God wants to use it to shape you, change you. Maybe think of it this way. You'll never become a patient person if your patience is never tested. So that person at work that's just like, oh, they test your patience. Maybe God doesn't actually want that relationship to go away. Maybe he wants it there so that you become a patient person as you trust in his spirit. Or think of it, you'll never be a great writer. Never be, unless you get some honest and, and sometimes painful critique. You'll never get it brilliantly first try. Would it be humbling? Yes. Is humility a good thing? It's a rhetorical question. Of course it is. So how do we, how do we find this, this space to be in? It's by looking to God in the middle of it all and saying, God, make me like you. I want what you want for me today. Produce in me whatever it is that you need to grow. I had a professor of pastoral care, Janet Clark, and uh, she's now the academic dean at Tyndale Seminary, but she would often say it like this, never waste a pain. Never let an opportunity to grow up, painful as it might be, slip past you without producing in you what God ultimately wants, our maturity, a character that looks like Jesus. That's what God wants to do with your thorns and thistles. So ask yourself, where are the thorns and thistles in my work? How am I responding to them right now? Maybe do I need to modify my approach? Are there ways I need to re-envision these struggles as opportunity for humility, growth, and transformation? I would just invite you to sit with that for just a moment. Consider those questions. 
frustrations of work, the difficulty of it, these are consequences of our fallenness of, of, as humanity. But the story isn't finished. Again, we need to go back to that very last scene in the Bible, Revelation 22. Here we're given a window into the end of this present age and the beginning of a, a new one. And what do we see? Again, it's that picture of the garden, but it's transformed. It, God gets what he wants. It's a city. The cultural mandate, what we were called to, is being fulfilled. It's being realized. But look at 22 verse 3 with me again. It says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. God is there, ruling from his throne. But not only that, the Lamb too. The, the Lamb? Now, if you didn't grow up going to church or, or reading the Bible, that might sound awfully funny uh, right now. <laughs> Let's work our way back just briefly through some passages that show us what this is about. We find out that the Lamb is another name for Jesus. See, when, when John the Baptist, who is preparing the way for Jesus' ministry, um, comes on the scene, he points at Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is God, the Son, was with his Father for all of eternity, always existed, but came into the human story through the Virgin Mary and the work of the Holy Spirit. As he grew up and began his ministry, that's how it starts out, the Lamb of God. What's that about? Well, John the Baptist, when he says the Lamb of God, he's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system, that a lamb would be slain in order that God's people could be forgiven. It references actually the Exodus, where God's people are delivered from slavery and oppression. The Lamb of God is there. And as his ministry comes to a climax, Jesus is falsely accused, and he's stripped of his garments. He's stripped so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. He is whipped and beaten, beaten, it says, so that we could be healed. He allows his life to be broken so that ours could mend and his good world could mend. In the law, we read, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus allows himself to be cursed, allows himself to be nailed to a tree to the cross. Why? To remove the curse once and for all. And Jesus wears a crown of thorns to remove forever the thorns of the curse. As we read in Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be any curse. Jesus destroys the curse through the cross. He destroys the curse to set us free. Notice this now. The curse is removed, but the work isn't. Revelation 22, 3 to 5. No longer will there be any curse. Hallelujah. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants. Who's that? Anyone who trusts in Jesus and what he's done for us through his death and resurrection. His servants will serve him. Serving God, that is ultimately what our work is. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they, who's they? It's the servants. That's the referent here. 
The servants will reign forever and ever. Reigning. That's the work. That's the good work of being good stewards, culture makers in God's good world. That's the work that we were given in Genesis chapter 1. And now in Revelation 22, we get to get on with that. Sands the curse. No curse. It's gone. Bit of French for you there. Not you, sorry. <laughs> sands the curse. I, I was not, yeah. I don't know French, but I know sands. Where did that come from? My mind is interesting some days. Wow. When you think of heaven, you need to understand that this is a physical place. Jesus' own resurrection is physical. It was bodily. His resurrected body was glorious. It could do things that our bodies can't do now. It's not going to wear out, and neither will ours. But our resurrection will be like Jesus' own resurrection onto a physical new earth. And so we will continue in our creative, vibrantly creative work, yet with no weeds. We continue to be creative, continue to image God through our culture making and our relationships. We will work, we will reign with God forever. See, I had a friend um, in our small group when we first moved to Kamloops in 2006. We were talking about heaven and she said, heaven doesn't sound interesting to me at all. Sitting on a cloud, playing a harp. I don't even like singing. I don't even know if I want to be a part of that. And, and she was being totally sincere. She meant it. She was like, I don't know if I would want to go to heaven. I can understand her sentiments. So we've often under, uh, inherited a, a vision, or we can inherit a vision, or we take it from childhood or the Simpsons or something, I don't know, where... Where our picture of heaven is woefully inadequate. Too often we inherit a tradition of reading Revelation as though the symbols aren't symbols, but they're somehow reality. So sitting on a harp, uh, sitting on a cloud playing a harp, um, isn't just seen as a wonderful picture of praising God and worshiping from all of eternity, but it becomes something that shapes our vision wrongly so. We can't conclude that heaven is just the symbols that point to it. The text tells us that we will serve God. We will do so with our bodies. We will reign, work, play, rest, enjoy. We'll be all that God intended us to be without the curse. But even now, as we go about our culture making, our serving God, our serving our neighbor and God's good earth, we can be formed and better fit for our eternal dwelling with God. We have the opportunity to let the thorns and thistles become an experience for us of pure joy that shape us to better reflect Jesus in our lives. As Paul himself heard from God as a result of the thorn in his flesh, my grace is sufficient for you. My power works best in your weakness. Would you hear that for you today as well? Would you let the grace of God be at work sufficiently meeting you in the thorns and thistles that you would be shaped to better image the sun? Let's pray that God would work not just through our strength but in the middle of our weakness as well. Would you pray with me as I invite the worship team? They're just going to close with one song uh, as, we, as we wrap up here. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the experience of the Apostle Paul. 
that in his work and his life, he experienced the difficulty of work. He knew the pain that resulted from sin. And God, in your grace, you saw fit to preserve that for him, to humble him, to keep him trusting you, to make it so evident that it's you who was working in him and not his own strength. God, help us to be a people who say in, in response that your grace is enough for us. Your grace is enough to cause us to be the people you're making us to be, to meet us in the middle of the pain, to work with us and work through us, that we might make your name great in our workplaces, in our homes, in the places we play. In Jesus' name we pray.